0: Well, here we are, week 13, semester 2, the end of another year on campus, and the end of another year of EU public meetings, and for some of you, maybe this is your very last EU public meeting ever. Just give us a wave if that's you. One, two, three, there's a number of you, this very last, I think that deserves an awe. Like, that's sad, that's sort of a marker, and I'm always, I mean, I know there's people who leave at the end of semester one, and we probably should think more about them, but right now I'm thinking about you, because you're leaving at the end of semester two, and I always uh, feel it on my heart that I, as I sort of bring God's word to you at the EU public meeting in the very final one of the year, that it should be a word that's appropriate for the moment, as you head out. So that's one thing that's on my mind. The other thing that is on my mind is this is the very last public meeting on the book of Isaiah for this year. So it's also on my mind that it's good to sort of try to wrap up the book of Isaiah in some sort of way, if one can wrap up a Himalayan mountain range, as the book of Isaiah is, but sort of try to finish with an appropriate sort of point. And the passage that we're looking at from Isaiah 58 would seem, at first glance, to be an odd choice for both those agendas. But anyway, if you've been coming to EU public meetings over a number of years, you're probably used to odd choices um, sometimes. But let me try to suggest to you that actually Isaiah 58, which, look, in in the mountain range of Isaiah, Isaiah 58 is not a terribly well-known mountain peak. In fact, I don't know when the last time it was, you actually stopped and reflected on Isaiah chapter 58, I want to suggest to you actually that it is quite an appropriate passage for both wrapping up the book of Isaiah and for helping send you out. Now, you might not be leaving. This might You might be back here next year in the EU public meetings. Awesome. That's I'll be looking forward to that. But it is sort of good to remember, isn't it, that even while we're here at uni, that one day, yes, you too will leave. And so it's helpful sometimes just to bear in mind that you're on a trajectory under God, being prepared by him through his word amongst his people and the power of his spirit to send you out too. So this might not be your final public meeting, but it's good to bear in mind that that's where you're going to hear this message too. Now, why is Isaiah 58 a good passage, maybe for these two particular goals? Um, Well, not in isolation, but remember last week as we looked at a key theme in the back end of the book of Isaiah of God taking salvation... That he alone can offer to the very ends of the earth. And I put out there that challenge of how are we going to serve the less reached and the less resourced with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That gave you a bit of a vision for what God is trying to do across the world. Wherever you end up, whatever you end up doing, that's what God's on about. That helps set your vision. But that's not the only thing he cares about. He also cares about you, how you live and your situation. That's what Isaiah 58 will address. So together, I think they set you up well for thinking about the future and for wrapping up some key themes of the book of Isaiah. So if you've got your Bible, it'd be really helpful to hope, open it up or maybe to call it up on your phone because, as I say, not, maybe it's not a terribly well-known passage for you. But I've got three main headings. So if you want to take some notes, sort of focus, because this is week 13, uh, that might help you. First heading is this. God's complaint. God's complaint. What's his complaint? No faith. God's complaint, no faith. Just as you think about that, when the one true living God who has created all, sustains all, is over all, when he has a complaint, that's a little bit scary, isn't it? If he has a complaint. If you have a complaint with me, I feel bad. If he has a complaint, that gets my attention. Let's have a look at this complaint. You've got Isaiah 58 there, the very beginning. He says, Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. So, this is a big deal, right? He's going public here. He's shouting it aloud. He's not going to hold back. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. What's God's complaint? It's the rebellion of his own people, that they refused to listen to him, refused to heed his word, refused to live his way, rejected him effectively as their God, their sin. But what is it in particular? Let's keep going. Verses 2 and 3. He says there, "...for day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways." as if they were a nation that does what is right, that has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. So they seem eager to know God's ways. They seem eager for God to come near to them. He says, day after day, they seek me out. They're asking me for just decisions. That all sounds really good, actually. But here's that hint of what is wrong there. Notice what it says. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what's right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. That is, they've got all the show of being God's people. Day after day they're calling out, have got all the show but no substance. They've got all this superficial religiosity, religious practice, with no heart, no transformed life. Look again at what the Lord says there in verses 3 and 4 as he focuses in a little bit on a particular aspect of their religious practice, fasting. He says there, verse 3, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? And then the Lord replies, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. They're doing all this religious observance. In this case, he picks on their fasting. So fasting is just where you decide not to eat and the reason you decide not to eat is not because you're trying to lose weight or something like that. You decide to not eat in order that you might focus on the Lord and give yourself to prayer. You save a lot of time, actually, if you don't. I mean, we tend to eat on the run, right? Go, if you're heading out into the workforce next year, you're probably going to even take a lunch break, right? You'll just eat at the desk. And, but that's not how things were done in a more hospitable culture. You actually eat, and it takes time. And so if you fast, you've suddenly got all this time that you can use for prayer. And so here they are, they're fasting, and they're saying, God, why are you not hearing us? Why are you not responding to it? We're doing all this fasting. And he says, yeah, because that day that you fast, it ends up in fisticuffs. You end up hitting each other around. You end up having a fight with other people. The day that you're fasting, simultaneously you're exploiting all your workers, not treating them with justice. What did he say there at the conclusion? Look at his conclusion, second half, first four. You cannot fast as you do today, that is like this, and expect your voice to be heard on high. They've got the superficial religious practice, but no heart, no substance. So, that brings us to point number two. God's call. God's call to real faith. God's call to real faith. Have a look as he delves into this question about their fasting as an example of what's going on in their life in verses 5 and 6. He says, Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? See, what's implied there in the Lord's critique of their fasting is, fasting is much more than just a day where you don't eat. It's not just an isolated religious practice or observance. It just sort of sits out there on its own. God is interested more in just that particular observance. He's interested in the whole of life out of which that observance is meant to arise. And he says very clearly here that sort of fast, that's just an isolated observance, disconnected to a heart of faith, that is not acceptable to the Lord. Then jumping to verse 6 Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? What's the fasting, in air quotes, that the Lord's interested in? It's, it's not actually not eating, so you can pray. The, the sort of fasting, and he's now using it metaphorically, That the religious observance that he's interested in is practical addressing of injustice in our midst. It's the freeing of those who are oppressed, providing food and shelter and clothing for the needy, caring for your flesh and blood, the, your family. That's the religious practice, that's the fasting that the Lord is actually interested in. Now, He's not saying that literal fasting is always useless or pointless. We know can't be that now because when you go and jump through to the New Testament, we can see examples in the New Testament of Christians in good faith, trusting the Lord Jesus, engaging in fasting as a useful religious practice or discipline so that they might devote themselves more fully to God for particular periods of time. So it can be a right expression of genuine faith. But what God really, the point he's making here is that he's interested in the whole of your life not in isolated religious practices. So, let me, having established that from the text, let me make three reflections just on that before we move to our big point three. Three reflections here. First of all, this, what we're reading here, is a very consistent theme across the whole book of Isaiah, which is why I say it's not a bad place to land at the end of our series. This has been there right from the very beginning. If you've got your Bible there, or on your phone, flick back to Isaiah chapter 1. Let me remind you of what was there right back to the beginning of the year when we looked at Isaiah chapter 1. Different words, but making a very same point. Isaiah chapter 1, you me remember, is a bit of an overture to the all of the book and it brings up a lot of the key themes. And if you jump in at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, let me read to you a few verses here. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, again, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were destroyed hundreds of years previously. He's actually using those titles to describe his own people, God's own people. That's, they've become like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So far have they wandered from his way. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, that's just a different type of religious observance, isn't it? The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, he says the I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fat, the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? That is, these sacrifices, these trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies." Your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. That's just what we read in Isaiah 58. Right? They're saying, why are you not listening to me?
1: Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen.
0: Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. It's the same point that's being made. Mere religious practice is meaningless. What God wants from his saved people is, and here's the key phrase, the righteous life that springs from faith. That's what the one true God wants from his saved people the righteous life that springs from faith. Now, the religiosity, the religious practice that you and I are tempted by is probably not fasting. I don't meet many Christians these days who fast. Probably the religious practice that you and I are more familiar with or more tempted to sort of associate with just as long as I'm doing this, I'm doing the right thing are things like church attendance or reading my Bible or having a quiet time, maybe financial giving or, you know, in EU land, maybe serving on a team or making sure I turn up to Bible study or doing walk-up or some sort of religious practice where we say, I'm doing, I'm sure, what God wants, I'm keeping my side of the bargain, I'm ticking all the boxes. And yet the, the real danger is we can do all that like God's people here, forsaking all of his commands, as he said in verse 2. So you can do all that and still be a greedy person. Still be a person who is loose with the truth, who lies, Someone who is, has a lack of compassion. Oh, you, you know, go and do walk-up, but you are unwilling to sacrifice for others. You turn up to church every week but your thought life just runs unchecked. In secret we give ourselves to porn or to sexual immorality or we disregard our family or we pursue vengeance. We hold on to bitterness. We abuse power in relationships. We refuse to speak up and defend the defenseless, we can do all the religious practice, but are we living the righteous life that springs from genuine faith? See, the one true living God has called us through faith in Jesus to be His people, to live that righteous life that springs from real faith. And that righteous life is so much more than go to church, read the Bible, don't have sex with someone you're not married to, and give 10% of your money to the church. But often we reduce Christian living to those four things. Oh. And tell your workmates about Jesus. Five things. We reduce Christian living. That's our picture of the righteous life. Now, let me be clear on these things. You can do all those things and it just be superficial religiosity. In which case, from this passage, the Lord says, I am not interested. Is that the kind of fast, the kind of righteous life I've chosen? I'm just not interested. He's interested in the righteous life that springs from real faith. And that yes, that does include meeting with God's people for mutual encouragement and love. Uh, It does include reading the scriptures to have your mind and life transformed by his word. It does include sexual faithfulness in marriage and sexual chastity outside of marriage, mirroring both the faithfulness and the chastity of God himself and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it includes financial generosity to God's people and the extension of God's global mission, both with your money, but also with your words. So it includes those things as they spring from real faith, but the righteous life includes so much more than that. As we're reminded in this passage, it includes caring for your family. It means providing for the physical in need. Addressing oppression and injustice, especially amongst God's people. That's why I think it's been really helpful this year that the EU has chosen some particular foci to sort of help move us along down this path of living the righteous life that springs from faith. In, as the EU's tried to encourage us to embrace sacrificial love for those less rich and less resourced with the gospel as we think about where we might live and serve and go to church beyond graduation. As we think about reaching the lost on campus through our festival activities this year as we think about how to love the marginalised and the vulnerable, as we think about how to love one another, who are the new family of God. This is your flesh and blood, as it were, in, in, under God's hand. But there is a warning here, I think, as we thought to think about this issue. There's a warning here, especially for those who are graduating. See, over time, I guess what I've observed over a few years of doing this work here at Sydney Uni with people like yourselves, what I've observed over time is that faith can die, but sometimes the religious practices remain. Often faith dies first, whilst those religious practices continue. And that's the situation that's here in Isaiah 58, that the Lord is trying to address. He's calling them back to real faith and the righteous life that springs from it. So fast forward one year from now. There you are in your suit or dressed nicely in your work gear, with your new work wardrobe, and you're heading off, whether it's to the school to teach or whether it's into the city to sit at your nice desk next to the window. Oh, no, you graduate. You won't be near the window (laughs) in the middle of the floor. Um, And there you are. But one year, what about three years from now? What about ten years from now? when uni is a bit of a memory, will you be living the righteous life of real faith? Or will you, like the Israelites here, just be going through the motions? Will your faith have been reduced to superficial religious practices? I'm going to church. I read my Bible on the train. Don't take my children. I'm trying to be faithful in my relationships, and I'm giving some money to the church. Will you just have reduced it down to superficial religious practices? Because if that's all it is, then that's no faith at all. I was changed to a graduate who's now about ten years out, and he had this moment. He was telling me about a church where he. Um, he got up at the end of church and was sort of, they were talking around, you know, as you chat around, and he sort of looked towards the back of church. And he goes to a church up on the North Shore, and so a lot of people working, you know, very successfully in business. And he just said, There are a bunch of, in this case, men, he, he could see there, who were all in their late 40s, 50s, all very <laughs> successful business people. There they are. Hey, look, Sunday morning, there they are. They're in church on their phones. Yeah, in church. And, and he doesn't know their heart, and I certainly don't, I don't even, I don't know their heart, but he just said, he said, it just sort of struck me. Is that, is that my future? Is that it? I don't want that to be it. And I think he's giving voice to that, that spirit inspired heart shaped by the word of a righteous life, full righteous life that springs from faith. Or are you going to be like the guy who used to sit in front of me at church? When I, um, many years ago, I grew up in the outer western suburbs of Sydney. And I can remember, um, you know, it was a small church. You know when it's a small church, you tend to sit in the same sort of seats each week. I don't know. Do you have that experience? I have that experience now. I go to a small church now. But, um, and there was this guy who would sit in front of me every week, every week. And he was, I was, you know, sort of uni-age, but he was probably late 20s, um, maybe thirty. I don't know, he looked old to me at the time.
1: <laughs>
0: and every week, without fail, at the end of the gathering, as we sort of finish and go to supper, he would stand up, like this, so I'm sitting behind him. He would stand up, turn around, stretch and go, oh, well, that's over for another week. He said that every week. <laughs> to me, every week. That was the first thing he said. I don't know his heart. But is that it? The Lord's not interested in it. He's interested in the righteous life that springs from genuine faith. Second reflection, though, on this particular point. You might say, well, this is all pretty bleak at this moment. I say, well, that's all right. I've got the remedy for you, actually. Genuine scripture remedy for you. If you find that a bit bleak, the answer is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is the answer. See, the shadow of Jesus has been everywhere in this book of Isaiah, as it points forward to him who came amongst us. And it's here in Isaiah 58, in a couple of ways, it's there here in the description of true fasting, to set the oppressed free, to loose the chains of injustice, that's language that's picked up just a few chapters later in Isaiah 61, to describe the spirit-endowed servant of the Lord, who Jesus identified in Luke 4 as himself. That is, Jesus shows us what true fasting, the true righteous life that springs from faith, looks like in all his dealings with people, in his meaning of their physical and spiritual needs. As he pointed them forward to the coming kingdom of God in the proclamation of that gospel message, he shows us the righteous life that springs from real faith. And yet also, secondly, as the suffering servant of the Lord, who we've been hearing about in his book of Isaiah, He's the one who bears the guilt and punishment for our failures to live that righteous life. All of our unrighteous living and our lack of faith, he took upon himself so that we might be clean. Jesus and his sacrifice for us and his new resurrection life, they are the reason God can say to us, as he says in Isaiah chapter 1, come now, let us reason together, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow." Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wall. So this is how Jesus is the remedy for when our faith grows cold. You can always come back to Jesus. If I can leave you with one message from the scriptures, that's probably one that I would choose to leave you, right? that you could just, if somehow I could engrave this under the power of God into your mind and heart such that you always knew this truth, you can always come back to Jesus. No matter how far you wander, no matter how cold your faith grows, no matter how much you get squashed out by the rest of life, no matter how many years go by, no matter how many troubles beset you, No matter how many mistakes and foolish decisions you make, you can always come back to Jesus. I don't know when you're going to need to know that, when you're going to need to remember that. I pretty much guarantee that you will. You can always come back to Jesus. If you want to avoid empty religiosity and a faith that grows cold, just keep looking to Jesus as he shows us in Scripture what true fasting looks like. And if you do, walk away from him or you find yourself just going through the motions, remember you can always come back to him. With him there is always grace and mercy and forgiveness a new life and a fresh start. Third little reflection just at this point there, this emphasis on God's interest in righteous living that springs from faith—that's a consistent message, not just in the Book of Isaiah, but across all of the Scriptures. You might be thinking, "Hang on, aren't we saved by faith, not by works?" But this talk seems to be talking about righteous life, That's as we talk about works. Well, you're right—we are saved by faith and not by works. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine: "For it is by God's it's by grace that you have been saved through faith." And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Though so I think Paul there in Ephesians 2 is actually making the same point that the Lord is making here in Isaiah 58. Because empty religious works don't save. God is not interested in our isolated religious practices. He wants faith. And true faith in God, that recognises he's God and accepts his word and his way, true faith shows itself in righteous living. As Paul goes on to say in the very next verse of Ephesians 2, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Genuine faith will necessarily result in a changed life, which is why James in the New Testament can say faith without works, is dead. So you have the situation that works, without faith, they can't save, because, as we've seen, God is not interested in superficial religious practices. But faith, without any works, that won't save because it's clearly not real faith. Genuine faith always issues in changed life that is heading towards righteousness. And it's that genuine faith... That the one true living God calls for from us, his people, across the whole of the scriptures. That's what he's going to call from you for the rest of your days until the Lord Jesus returns. Well, I'm going to finish with my final and third point from this passage, going back to Isaiah 58. We had God's complaint, no faith. We had God's call, real faith. Now God's promise, the blessing of real faith. The rest of this chapter, which I can't go through verse by verse, but the rest of this chapter, from verses 8 through to the end of the chapter, have sort of three sections where the Lord says, now if you get on board with true fasting, that is if you get on board with the righteous life that comes from faith, here's all the blessings that will come to you. So you have sort of three sets of blessing. The first set of blessing are verses 8 and 9, and that's the blessing that... If you come back on board with God, if you're a person of true faith, showing that righteous life, then God will be there for you when you are in need. God promises to be there for you when you are in need. He talks about you being restored in verse 8. He talks about you having protection in verse 8. He talks about his own responsiveness to you when you pray. He will answer you. He will be there for you when you are in need. Secondly then, in verses 10-12, to he talks about the blessing of being wrapped up in God's great salvation plans. If you're a person of genuine faith, which issues in that righteous life, then you will be wrapped up in God's salvation plan and you will receive all the blessings that come from that. He talks in verse 11 about he used Exodus type language. In verse 11 he also talks about the Garden of Eden. He says it'll be like your sort of Receiving the blessing of the Exodus. It's like you receive the blessing of the Garden of Eden. Or in verse 12, the blessing of Jerusalem being rebuilt. This is the blessing of being involved in God's salvation plans, fulfilled in your own experience. And then thirdly in verse 14, and maybe I will read this one because I love it so much. He says, then, that is, if you are the person who comes back to, to true faith in God, Showing that righteous life. Then he says, you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. He's talking about joy and satisfaction. That's what he promises you. Joy and satisfaction. So he has a complaint, no faith. He has a call, come back to true faith and issues of the righteous life. And gives you the great promises to go with the blessings. is why you should do it. Because there are going to be moments where you are in need, friend. All sorts of need. And you want to be able to call out to him who can be your rear guard, who can respond to you in his divine power and sovereignty of grace and love.
1: You will be in need.
0: And the world is going to try to sell you all sorts of solutions. This is what you really need to do. You
1: need to get into this scheme. You need to be into this program. You need... but actually, God
0: has His schemes, God has His salvation plans. You want to be in on that. You want to be in on the promise of Eden. You want to be in on the promise of the Exodus. You want to be in on the promise of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the program you want to be in. And you are going to spend a lot of your life longing for joy and satisfaction, and the world will try to sell you all sorts of solutions for those two things. I would say, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance. So, God is not interested in our superficial religious practices. He's interested in the righteous life that springs from real faith. Keep that faith alive and growing by always looking to Jesus. And remember, you can always come back to Jesus. And to feel that faith, remember God's promises. That's why He's given them to you. This is what He's promised to those who entrust themselves to Him that He hears you when you cry out in need that he will fulfil all of his salvation plans for you in Jesus Christ, and that he alone will provide you with
1: real joy and satisfaction. Lord God, help us to live the righteous life that springs from genuine faith. We see in Isaiah a dead faith with religious practices remaining. Lord, give us an earnest desire for our faith not to be reduced to superficial religious practices. Father, your son, the suffering servant, is the remedy for this. And the only way to cure a cold faith. But no matter how far we wander, we can always come back to you. When we are with you, we can experience true joy. Lord, thank you for the graduating students and leaving families. Thank you for their encouragement and example and the way in which they've directed us to you and your love for us. Lord, please watch over them as they leave me. Help them to continue to grow in your love and put in your service the skills they've gained in the EU, even leading them to possibly serve you in an area less rich or less resourced for your gospel. Thank you for giving us them and continue to sustain them for their whole lives, knowing of your most incredible work on the cross. Amen.